turn over to Colossians 3. We're continuing our uh, mini-series on Christ in your sin for Lent. <clears throat> kind of working through that process of sanctification, and we're in that section where we're dealing with uh, various groups of sin that Paul has uh, recognized in the Colossian church. And uh, actually, if you look at his letters in most churches that he wrote letters to. So, let us begin. Hear the word of God. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, the holy history that is recorded even here to this church in Colossae was written for our instruction These people are examples to us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. These events remind us of the power of self-deception, pleasure, and idolatry. But they also remind us that you are faithful. Texts like these are one way in which you guard us from such temptations. So I ask that you would instruct us now that we might enjoy the earthly benefits of our eternal salvation in Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Some of you may be familiar with the name Andrew Carnegie. I did say that right. Most of us American-speaking people say Carnegie, but it's Carnegie. So... Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit uh, Counterfeit Gods, um, notes something that he had written at one point young in his life. He was uh, in his 30s when he did this. Man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol more more debasing than the worship of money. Whatever I engage in, I must push inordinately, therefore, Should I be careful to choose the life which will be the most elevating in character, to continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time, must degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. I will resign business at 35. But during the ensuing two years... I wish to spend the afternoons in securing instruction and in reading systematically. Here, Carnegie 
was afraid for his very soul. He recognized that he had fallen prey to the idol of wealth and was pursuing this process of amassing wealth. And he recognizes that there may come a point beyond which he could not return. And so here, though he's 33, imagine that. I'm going to retire at 35. You know, we hear people saying that today. He said he was going to retire at 35 lest it take over his soul. He would not agree with Gordon Gecko, who said that greed was good. There's a lot of talk about greed right now, particularly the phrase corporate greed. And corporate greed makes sense. Not in the good sense, but I mean intellectually it makes sense because corporations are made of people. People who tend to fall into the trap of greed. The reflection that you have in the orders of worship this morning from Ed Welch just kind of reminds us that no matter what the political system, what the economic system, there is always going to be greed precisely because there's always going to be people. There's no perfect political system that will eliminate greed. You can have laws against it, and you should, but that will not eliminate it. The big idea this morning is that Christ is the only one who is sufficient to kill our covetousness. I'm going to do just what I did last week. First, I'm going to define the particular sin. Then I'm going to talk about what's so bad about it. And then I'm going to talk about part of that process by which, through the grace of God, we put, we try to put it to death so that it does not linger on us. That it is, we live in a key way that is keeping with our new identity in Christ as opposed to the old man, Adam. And so let's start with the notion that covetousness is an idolatrous greed for evermore. Not just more but evermore, because you're never satisfied with what you have. This is his first of two vice lists in this passage. And Paul, last week we talked about sexual immorality and all the words associated with that that he uses. And this time he brings up another common problem that is probably less obvious to us. Usually we have a notion when we're we're transgressing sexual boundaries, but we often aren't aware of the greed that resides in our own hearts. And so Paul uses this term, this word covetousness, which can also be translated greediness. Avarice, a lot of isses there, but insatiableness, that idea, that notion of never being satisfied, that there's a longing for evermore, that whatever you get, you're always wanting more. It's a restlessness of the spirit. In Romans 1, 29, Paul connects this covetousness, this restlessness, this greediness with not knowing God. That when we do not know God, that we are very prone towards this particular sin. And in fact, as we look a little bit later on in this passage from which I just read, that we are being renewed in the knowledge of God. That's part of this process. We must know God to be freed from avarice. But, of course, I get ahead of myself. 
Paul mentioned covetousness either directly or by one of its other related sins in at least 50% of his letters. This indicates to me that this was a common problem, that we're so used to seeing perhaps greed in other people, but we don't often see the greed that resides in our own hearts. It is, again, this insatiable desire for more, and but it's the more is unclear. This could be connected to the sexual sins that were just ahead of this in the text, but I think it's not. I think he's talking about possessions, wealth, money in this particular context. We're going to stick with that thought as we work our way through the text as we work our way through the sermon. But we have to recognize that this covetousness is connected to other sins. Other things are sort of branches of this. like Things like envy. Wanting what other people get. Whether it's the promotion, whether it's the, the new um, toy that they get to play with, the gift that they got, whatever it is, we, we struggle with envy because we didn't get it. And we want it. We struggle with discontentment. That we're not satisfied with what we do have. We don't take delight and pleasure and, and joy in it. But we're always looking to add to it. You know, we're not happy with our iPhone 4. You know, you've got to have the better iPhone. Or whatever form it takes. Proverbs 14 notes one of these when it says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy has a secret, unseen way to dismantle your life from the inside. It's like a spiritual cancer that eats away at you so that your your spiritual health disappears. Envy is dangerous, brothers and sisters. This is why the author to Hebrews said, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. How does he root this contentness? For he, Jesus, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So they were to remember the abiding, unchanging presence of Jesus Christ with them that they might be content with their circumstances, financial and otherwise. But one other sin that covetousness is connected with, Paul makes explicit, which is idolatry. The word which is basically, it's a a compound word, idol, worship, or service, stuck together. So idolatry is just worshiping or servicing an idol. That's all it is. They're seeking something ultimate, ultimate from wealth or whatever it is that they're seeking after. Some people seek security from their wealth. They think that if they have enough money, they can isolate themselves from the problems of life. If they have enough money, then the health issues won't matter. If they have enough money, they can get a nice enough house in a secure enough neighborhood that they don't have to worry about someone breaking in because that doesn't happen in good neighborhoods, mind you. Or they can spend enough money getting enough security systems to protect themselves from whatever might happen to them. 
It's about security for some people. They need the money so they can buy security. Some people seek status that money can bring with them. The, the, the extra money now means you're somebody. You have arrived. Did anyone listen to any of the things that Joe Flacco, the NFL quarterback, said when he got his big contract? Now I know they respect me. It's about respect for him. That, that a lot of athletes do this. He's not the only one that does this. But they, they tie in their salary with respect. And so if they think that they are one of the best at their position, they should be paid like one of the best, or they don't respect me. It's like, really? No one respects you if you only make $10 million a year? I don't get it. <laughs> okay? But then again, I'm not a professional athlete. But we all kind of play that, don't we, at times? If, if my employer really respected me, I'd get more money. We can do that too. Some people seek the stuff that you can buy with money. The, the new and bigger, bigger toys and joys, perhaps. You know, the, the new car or the uh, bigger house. Or uh, I liked it in Florida. I like, to, I like to be friends with the people who had the jet skis. I liked riding on those. Wouldn't want to own one. That's a lot of work. <laughs> but you understand? People want wealth not because they like money, but because they love all the things they can buy with their money. You know, the fishing boats and motorcycles and all of that kind of stuff. The, the people who collect cars. I can barely keep the cars I have running. Collect them? I don't understand this. Some people seek the power that money can bring. The influence that they have because now they have money. Prestige. It means that you can get what you want from other people. You have control over them. Jesus offered some sobering words in the Sermon on the Mount when he was talking about money. Which, remember, Jesus talked about money a lot. Far more than I do. Maybe I need to talk about money more. Um, But one of the things he said was, No one can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Either we're going to seek God and serve God, or we're going to seek and serve money. And so all of us struggle with some form of covetousness that idolatrous greed for more. So let's talk about why it's so dangerous. Covetousness corrodes our fellowship with God and with one another. One of the things that Paul had said just prior to this text, the previous verses was, set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on the earth. Of course, it doesn't mean you, ha- you, you don't have to think about your homework that's due tomorrow, okay? Or, uh, the, you know, you don't have to think about what you're going to wear to work when you go to work, okay? But this is a preoccupation. For instance, when I was a senior in college, I was looking ahead to that big payday. It never came. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I bought one of those new car guides, and I had a car in mind. It was, a, it was a sports car, you know. Hey, I'm 22. I want a sports car. And so I would spend hours trying to figure out, you know, what 
luxury packages and accessories I could get and uh, try and keep it under 20 grand, you know, that kind of thing. Imagine, that was 1984. So that was a pretty expensive car for back then, you know. 20 grand was a lot of money. I spent a lot of time invested in that in a car I never owned. I had set my mind on things of the earth. I was seeking things of the earth. And in seeking these earthly things and in setting our minds on these things, we forget, we lay aside Christ. That's exactly where our focus should be. Keep your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so when we're caught up in covetousness, we lose the bullseye of our life. It shifts. It's moved over to something else instead of being Christ and then everything underneath it. And we break the first commandment that we're to have no gods before or besides Him because now we've allowed this money to become the center of our life. And so we've forsaken, at least in part, the joy that should be ours in the gospel because we've started to focus on something else. And if we're seeking something at the expense of Christ, we dishonor Him. And that is why Paul says that here in this text, on account of these things that he had just mentioned, all the sexual immorality as well as the covetousness that is idolatry, said on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. That is God's assessment of greed. We tend not to think of that. We tend to think of it as one of these lesser sort of sins. Unless, of course, it's some rich capitalist guy, you know, then it's bad. But our greed, ah, it's no big deal. Ours is bad too. Greed is no respecter of economic status. It's no respecter of the color of your skin. It's no, it's no respecter of anything. Your political party, it's not a respecter of the, uh, the government, the type of government you exist under. Everybody is susceptible to greed. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks in that passage talks about whether an eye is good or bad. And Tim Keller spends a little bit of time in his sermon on it talking about that. And that's really the being able to perceive your own greed. When, when you're greedy, you don't recognize it. That's one of the problems. You may recognize it in other people, but you do not see it in your own life. You become self-deceived by the greed. It's quite dangerous. And so Jesus ends up having to die to pay the price for our greed. Yet Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 has to remind them who will not inherit the kingdom. And he does say, he says, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, we cannot continue to live as we did and think that we partake of the kingdom of God. Because that is completely antithetical to God's character, this greed. It's part of why it's so serious. 
And so, you know, we're neglecting God. We're breaking the first commandment so that we might have earthly sorts of stuff. But covetousness manifests itself in different ways, both in how you seek money and in what you do with the money. And so it, it can get you coming and get you going, so to speak. Both Paul, in the text that Marty read for us, 1 Timothy 6, and Gregory of Nyssa, recognized that the love of money was at the root of many sins. For instance, Gregory of Nyssa, injustice is rooted in greed. Greed propels us to take what is not rightfully our own. While outright theft is one form of greed, so is also being unwilling to speak up when others are being mistreated. The idea there that you don't want to lose your comfort and security by speaking up. So he touches on things that the Bible mentions in, in great depth, perhaps dishonesty and business practices. That's one form it can take. Will you lie and cheat and scheme to get ahead, to get that extra couple of dollars? Or as I heard about recently, uh, Overcharge the U.S. government. That's always a great thing for a contractor to do. Overcharge the government. Um, because, hey, they got all the money they need. No, they're stealing from you folks when they do that. Theft. Greed was the, the foundation for the slave trade. It still is for modern slavery. It's about greed. The, the ability to get money f- for people. It's all greed. Deceit, embezzlement, all of these kinds of things. I'll tell you right now that Carnegie did not retire when he was 70. We'll get to that at the end of the sermon. But he, some of his employees were interviewed. Although Carnegie built... 2,059 libraries, which, that's pretty impressive. Carnegie did a lot of good. Okay. A steelworker, speaking for many, told an interviewer, we didn't want him to build a library for us. We would rather have had higher wages. At that time, steelworkers worked 12-hour shifts on floors so hot that they had to nail wooden platforms under their shoes. Every two weeks, they toiled in unhuman, inhuman 24-hour shift, and then they got their sole day off. So you'd work two weeks straight, end it with a 24-hour shift, and then you'd get a day off. The best housing they could afford was crowded and filthy. Most died in their 40s or earlier from accidents or disease. So... What this steelworker is saying is he was nice to us in the sense that he built us libraries, but we needed a livable wage. And so that's another way in which greed manifests itself, uh, exploiting other people so that you can get ahead. Even if it's to get ahead to do good things, like building libraries or hospitals or universities, those are good things, and yet... They were people who were exploited to enable him to be able to do that. James, chapter 4, says another problem with greed and covetousness. 
You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And so we see that greed interpersonal, can cause interpersonal conflict. It can create international conflict. What, what, was the, what instigated the first Gulf War? Iraq invading Bahrain. Because, what was it, Bahrain? Kuwait, yeah. They all blend in for me. Because they wanted the oil in Kuwait. Want to talk about war for oil? That was one. Okay? It was all greed. Countries do this all the time. Wanting other people's land, other people's property, other people's resources. And so it happens on the large scale and the small scale of interpersonal relationships. Okay. But then let's talk about when we have it. When we have it, what we tend to do is either hoard it or we spend it on ourselves. Again, it's all, it becomes all about us. Hoarding money is a manifestation of greed. Because you need that to feel safe and secure. So you don't want to give it to anybody else, even to the poor. Do you understand? Or we can spend it on ourselves, whether or not we've earned it yet. Think of these figures. The current figures right now. U.S. credit card debt. $7,117 per household. It's more than I make in a month. Don't know about you. That's just the average when you factor out the people who actually don't have credit card debt, like my family, then the, those who actually have it average $15,257. That's a whole lot of TV sets, ladies and gentlemen. Mortgage debt. I'm in trouble here. 149782 it's interesting when you consider how many people have um, are at the ends of their mortgages or have, or have already paid off of their home, and yet the number is still that high. Average student loan debt, $34,703. Don't forget the $3. Okay. Where, so it's not just the federal government that's in debt. We, the people, are in debt. Most of us are in, up, in debt up to our eyebrows, and that really limits what we can do for God in a lot of ways. Some, pe- some people who are greedy don't spend it. They hold on to it. They kind of lock it in their personal Fort Knox, and, and that means that they neglect the, the legitimate needs of other people and don't help them. So covetousness stifles our love for God and his people as we satisfy its cravings. Let's move to the third part of this. Being captivated by the all-sufficient Christ kills covetousness. That's really the only thing that kills covetousness. Being captivated by the all-sufficient Christ. Christ, who, as we see in this book again and again, is supreme and sufficient. That's the drumbeat of this letter. 
He's supreme over all things. And because he's supreme, he's a sufficient savior for you. And he's also sufficient for killing our covetousness. Jesus died upon the cross to pay the penalty for our covetousness. But now he is at work in us by his spirit. It does like he just wants to forgive us of our greed, but he also wants to eliminate our greed. And that's a good thing, even if it might be a painful thing at times. And so Paul says that command, put to death. We need to kill it before it spiritually kills us. One of my favorite World War II movies, um, that sounds strange, I know. Favorite World War II movie. Probably because of the realism. Saving Private Ryan. And later in the movie, uh, of course, they're, they're trying to find Private Ryan so they can bring him back home because his two brothers were killed on the same day, and, and he's the sole support for his mom. So they're trying to find this young man, and uh, they're behind enemy lines. Uh, actually, the lines are kind of blurry, but they, they're behind enemy lines, and they capture a German soldier. And the debate is what to do with the German soldier. They can't just parade around looking for Private Ryan with this German soldier with them, and they don't, you know, they obviously don't want to set him free. So they all decide that they're going to kill him. But there's one guy, the translator, the guy who knows German, and what happens is he builds this relationship because, you know, out of his own self-interest, he wants to understand more about the German language and about the German people, and so he begins to advocate on behalf of the prisoner so that they do not kill him, and he convinces the rest of them to set him free. And it seems like a tri- triumphant moment, a, a triumph of kindness over the hatred of the war until you get to later on in the movie. And the, the final climactic battle where they're trying to hold the Germans back. And what happens is that German soldier kills a couple of the men that was in that group. And the interpreter is in shell shock because of the battle. He, he's going up the stairs to see if his, if his comrades are all right, his brothers in arms are okay. And coming down the stairs is the German soldier who recognizes him. They recognize each other, and it's almost as if there's a look of disdain upon the German soldier's face. He doesn't hurt him yet. He just treats him like nothing. But because he set him free... Two men have lost their lives. Two men that he was supposed to guard and protect. And it's not till later on in the movie when he has to come face to face with this man again and one of them must die. Don't be gentle with your greed, brothers and sisters, because it will not be gentle with you. We are to put it to death. And we must see it before we can do that. And so we need to begin to pray for God to reveal precisely how greed works in our lives, how it affects how we earn and how it affects what we, how we spend it. This is, a, this is a good time to talk about this because right now is tax time. And uh, I haven't done mine yet. They're, they're like nagging at me. It has to get done. I hate it. Okay, But this is a great time for you to, to look at your giving compared to your earning. And, and do a percentage. Calculate it. Take a look at, at your current patterns, at least in terms of, you know, compared to how you spend your money, how much of it goes to you and how much of it goes to other people. This is a good time to look at that and think, Lord, is, am, I, am I being greedy with how I use my money? 
That's not the only measure that you can have with regard to this. Sometimes um, many of you are very generous with time. Sometimes many of you are generous in ways that don't show up on the balance sheet of uh, your taxes. We'll get to that in a bit. But positively, that's a negatively, positively we are to delight ourselves in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart, Psalm 37. That idea that, that we are to be captivated, to have as our highest joy God Himself, In other words, as Thomas Chalmers talked about, the greed must be expelled by a greater affection, and that greater affection can only be Jesus Christ. In other words, we must cultivate a greater love and delight in Jesus Christ because He is supreme and He is sufficient. We must recognize, for instance, that money or any other idol will not die for us, but He did. That's one of the things that we put in that we need to remind ourselves of often to fan the flames of delight that He is, a, he is the suffering Savior who died for our sins that we might have eternal life, that we will be free of our guilt and our shame. Paul talks about this in part in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. The idea that Jesus didn't drop in out of the sky, die on a cross and go away again, but that He impoverished Himself. He who was the Son of the Most High God and the Holy of Holies came as a the, the son of a Jewish carpenter out in the middle of Palestine, Galilee, poor for our sake. He did this. For our benefit, he did this. And so that's one of the things that we need to contemplate and we need to remind ourselves frequently to, to help us to grow in our love and delight in Christ. Tim Keller says, if we are deeply moved by the sight of His love for us, it begins to detach our hearts from other other would-be saviors. Because we recognize that they have done nothing for us, and He has given everything for us. Not only that, earlier here in this same letter that we have, in chapter 2, you have been filled in Him. Remember, if you're united to Christ, you have been filled in Him. These are gospel truths that we need to proclaim to ourselves on a regular basis. In other words, you don't have to fill yourself with something else. All the stuff that you want to fill yourself with isn't going to fill you. All the music you want to buy, all the movies you want to buy, all the whatever it is, will not fill you. Only Christ can fill you. And if you're in Him, He's already done it. So partake of that fullness instead of constantly being on the lookout for something else to try and fill an emptiness that you think you feel inside. 
And when we recognize that we're full, we can begin to grow in gratitude. We can begin to grow in generosity as these gospel realities become more real to us. Amy and I know somebody on the other side of the country who the vast majority of time we knew them had nothing. Living in a rented, beat-down mobile home, but generous. This person would give you the shirt off their back. And what is amazing to me is they had an uncle. And unknown to them, I think, this uncle was one of those people who was the inconspicuous millionaire. You know, the guy who earns money, doesn't spend it on anything. It lives in a dump and has millions. She was the only family member who regularly visited him and cared for him as he got sick and old. And so what she, what happened is she got it all. She became a millionaire. Didn't change how she lived. They bought a nice house, she and her husband. And it was amazing. We, you know, Amy went over to see the house and spent some time with her and everything. Oh, you're going to the, to the Congo. How much does, is the airfare going to cost? Really? Here you go. There it is. Not a thought, but generosity. This is a person, this is, I, can't, I still can't believe, you know, some of this stuff. But here's that you might need a new major appliance. Goes to Lowe's and has some weird connection with the manager. I don't know how she does this, but she always talks him into giving her stuff at cost. But she'll like, okay, I need two of that, two of those, two of those, and I need them delivered to the house. And she gives them to the people because they can't afford to get them for themselves. It's recognize, it, it, pray, We need to start praying, perhaps, that God would give us antenna to recognize the needs of other human beings and connect that to our ability to help them in some way, shape, or form. Some people are really gifted at that. Not expecting you to be like that. But we do need to grow, I think, in our generosity. Some of you are are very generous in ways that don't always show up because you always have people over to your house and you're feeding them and you're encouraging them. and That's a form of generosity. So don't think it's only about money because it's not. We have some of those people here doing great things like more of that. Because I want us to be known as being a grateful and generous church, precisely because that reflects the gospel in my mind. That's not the only thing that reflects the gospel, but it does. Because God is generous to us. Not only have we been filled in him, but Paul said that your life is hidden with Christ in God. In other words, we're to delight in Christ, not in the things that we covet. That's our real life. Not this stuff we're trying to chase down. It's Christ. And so when we recognize these things, we can learn with Paul that that secret to contentment. Because we recognize that what God provides, I mean, we can be content with what God provides because we know it's all temporary. Both Job and Paul said, we come in with nothing and we leave with nothing. Naked I came, naked I go. Don Henley in his uh, 
his album, The End of the Innocence, has a lot of songs about greed in it, and one of them has this line that I remember, but you don't see no hearses with luggage racks. <laughs> or as Margaret Becker sang years ago, you can't take it with you. So why are we focusing so much of our energy on getting things that we can't take with us? Which is exactly why Jesus said, store up your treasures in heaven, where moth, moth and rust cannot eat them away. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we're building an earthly treasure, that's where our heart's going to be. That's dangerous. Paul also said that if we have food and clothing, we are content. How many of you can... I can't say that. <laughs> How many of you can... That's so foreign to us. Now, if we threw in a house and a car. <laughs> but Paul obviously didn't have... There were no cars then, but he could have had a chariot, a cart. I don't know. He traveled a lot. But he says, we have food, we have clothing, we're content. I think a lot of ways, we need to have a radical re-understanding of, of what it should require for us to be content in Christ. That's the point. The problem is, is that we always think, I'll be, I'll be satisfied when I get this next thing. And you won't be. None of us have been. So we're also to remember, I think, from what Jesus says as well in the Sermon on the Mount, how God you know, feeds the flowers. That we're to keep providence in mind. That you're not in control of all your circumstances. That he ultimately is. And that your circumstances are determined by a holy wise, good God who has adopted you into his family. Whoa. Back to Andrew Carnegie for a moment. Um, Carnegie obviously did not Resigned business two years later. In other words, he didn't stop at 35. And many of the character-degrading effects he feared worked themselves out in his life. Andrew Carnegie knew that money was an idol in his heart, but he didn't know how to root it out. It can't be removed, only replaced. It must be supplanted by the one who, though rich, became poor, so that we might be truly rich spiritually. <clears throat> the gospel does more than deal with the guilt of your greed. Christ works in us to put an end to our greed. Even more, Christ works in us to produce gratitude and generosity, which brings him glory as the supreme and sufficient Lord and Savior of us all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a great Savior who came to bear the wrath 
that we deserve for our many sins, including our covetousness. And Father, I I confess on behalf of us all that we all struggle with this in various ways. No two of us are alike. And so we ask that you would be working in us, that we by the Spirit would be putting this to death. Only you can help us to see it. And so we ask that you would help us to see it. Help us to recognize the log in our eye. And by your, by your grace to remove it. We so desperately need you to do this. For we cannot do it in and of ourselves. Help us not to live in a sense of condemnation. Help us not to live in, in a, the, a, a, a gnawing fear. Help us to rest confidently in your grace and the mercy and forgiveness of Christ so that we delight in him. And that begins to push the covetousness out of the center of our hearts. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.